Well, so glad to have all of you with us this morning. Again, my name is Ian. I'm the youth and family pastor here, and I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. Uh, there is at least one new face that I know of this morning, and I'm going to call him out because we're blood kin, and that's my dad in the back room there. So that's my dad there, and uh, glad to have him with us. He was coming through and decided he'd stop with us, and I knew I'd get a lunch out of it, so I said, you can come on by. So uh, to, a, to a question that was made to me from, from this side of the room, we'll try to get out of here for lunch because mine's, mine's on the house. So, so I'm happy. I'm just kidding. But uh, we're so happy to be with you all this morning. Glad to have him with us and uh, just glad to, to be in the house of the Lord this morning. So as we, as we start this morning, I want us also to remember Pastor Matt as he is out of town and they're taking a vacation and, and just having some family time. You know, they've had a lot of sickness in their family for the past few weeks and, you know, Maggie has not been, been great. She's been fighting the, the throat thing for a while, uh, just having a sore throat and the kids having ear infections left and right. Elizabeth has, has dodged it, uh, which is incredible because they've had like three or four different things come through their house in the past four weeks. So just keep them in your prayers as they're traveling, as they are spending time together. Um, and they are with us this morning. I know that they'll be watching and worshiping with us this morning. And so uh, Matt has already sent his prayers for y'all this morning to me. And so be known that he is thinking of you this morning. So as we, as we begin this morning, we're going to go ahead and jump into God's word. We're going to be in Galatians Act 1 this morning. So that's Galatians Act 1. Act 1. Chapter 1. Sorry about that. Don't know where that came from. So Galatians chapter 1. Starting in verse 6. So when you get there, if you would stand, if you're willing and able for the reading of God's word. Again, that's going to be Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And I want to start this morning with the reading of his word. If you would, read with me, starting in verse 6. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant unto Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we stand and as we are here, as we are present, God, we pray that this morning you would reveal the truths of your word to us this morning. God, that you would remove each of us, not just myself. God, each of us, and allow your spirit to come in, Lord, and speak to us this morning. Remove our flesh, remove the things that we brought in here with us, the struggles that we have, the things that have weighed heavy on us. God, let us lay those things on you this morning, so that we may receive the truth of your word. There is no other gospel but yours. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask you to bless this time together. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. So this morning, before we get uh, too far 
I wanted to, to share a story. And as this week I was coming through thoughts and, and different stories and different illustrations, I was reminded of, of an illustration that I think we all know. All know. And rather than giving you uh, the title of the illustration, I'm just going to begin to read. Uh, and I may look up every now and again to see how many people are smiling, because then I know you know the illustration. So we'll begin reading this illustration here. There once was a shepherd boy who was bored as he sat on the hillside watching the village sheep. So he amused himself, he took a great breath and sang out, Wolf! Wolf! The wolf is chasing the sheep. The villagers came running up the hill to help the boy drive the wolf away, but they arrived at the top of the hill and they found no wolf, yet saw the boy laughing. At this sight they became angry with him. Don't cry wolf, shepherd boy, said the villagers. When there's no wolf, they went grumbling back down the hill. Later, the boy being bored once again thought, I'll try it twice. And again he cried, wolf, wolf, the wolf is chasing the sheep. To his naughty delight, he watched the villagers run up the hill to help him drive away the wolf once again. When the villagers saw there was no wolf, they sternly said, save your frightened song for when there is really something wrong, do not cry when there is no wolf. But the boy just grinned and watched, and watched them go grumbling down the hill once again. Later, to the boy's surprise, he saw a real wolf prowling around the flock. Alarmed, he leaped to his feet and he sang out as loud as he could, Wolf! Wolf! But the villagers thought he was trying to fool them again, so not to be fooled a third time, they did not come. At sunset, everyone wondered why the shepherd boy had not returned to the village with their sheep. They went up the hill to find the boy. They found him weeping. There really was a wolf here. The flock is scattered. I cried out, Wolf, why did you not come? An old man tried to comfort the boy as they walked back to the village. We'll help you look for the lost sheep in the morning, he said, putting his arm around the youth. But nobody believes a liar, even when he is telling the truth. The boy learned, an, the boy learned a lesson that day, that compromising the truth for any reason leads people to stop believing what you say is true. And then when you're telling the truth, when you really need them to believe, they won't. This morning we look at a text where Paul is writing to a church in Galatia who has began to be pulled away from the gospel of Christ back to a faith of Judaism, which is a faith that he actually once came from. And he sees them being pulled back into this lie that they have to obey the law, they have to follow the law, they have to fulfill the law in order to have salvation, in order to have grace upon them. We look here in verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He says, I'm astonished, I'm surprised, I'm shocked. Paul literally is taken off guard. If we know the story of Paul, it's not a surprise that he is. I mean, his conversion is one of the most incredible, if not powerful, we see in Scripture. The imagery that's used there, the way in which God comes to him, the way in which Christ confronts him in his flesh and in his sin and in a moment where he needed it the most, in a moment where he did not see it come. And he says, even he is astonished because in his mind he doesn't see another way. This is a man who left everything that he built his life upon. As a young boy, Paul 
But we knew he was going to one day be a Pharisee. He knew he was going to uphold the law. And they build him up in this way and they train him up in this way. And he comes to a point where he's now upholding the law. Right? He's, he's going forth and he's persecuting Christians all over the nation. And then one day on the road to Damascus, he runs into Christ. Or Christ not only confronts him, but Christ stops him where he stands. He goes blind, he's not hungry, he can't physically do anything for himself anymore. And so God tells someone to go pray for him, and then he's given back everything that was taken from him. Physically. God restores him in that moment. So for this man, there is no other choice but Christ. It doesn't make any sense. So when he says, I'm astonished, he's not just talking about, man, you know, that, that magic trick, that ending really surprised me. No, he's saying, it makes no sense what you're doing. There's no logical way. You cannot give, provide any argument or justification for why you are turning away from the gospel. Nothing will prove to me that anything of what you're doing is the right choice. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him. So quickly. The fact that you, not, not only have you turned away, but, but you just heard the word. You just heard the truth, and, and yet you're so quick to go back. This is the problem that you see actually overseas. This is the problem that we ran into in Africa the few times that I've been. Where you would have someone, you'd share the gospel of Christ with them, and they would be willing to accept the gospel of Christ. They'd be willing to accept Christ. But they just tag him on to their list of gods that they worship. They accept him. They take him on, absolutely, quickly, we'll take him. But he's just an addition to what they have. He's not the sole God. He's not the one that they worship. He's just another add-on for that. So he says, you're so quickly, you accept Christ and you so quickly desert him. This word here, deserting, is not just like leaving somebody behind. You know, it's not like you're at Walmart with your friends, you know, or like with, with me and my wife, we're so sometimes she wants to leave me at Walmart uh, and doesn't, right? But it's not one of those moments of deserting. Now, this word here, deserting, is actually a term that in the Greek actually goes back to military purposes. It goes back to warring purposes. Where This is a word of where in wartime somebody would desert. The same word was used. And for those that were to desert during that period, the punishment was only death. If you were caught, if you would have had deserted during wartime, the only punishment was death. So Paul says, when you're so quick to leave, you're actually quickly to run to your death. You're not only leaving, I'm astonished that you would leave Christ and the proclamation and run towards your death. Willingly, freely, so quickly, that you would openly run to your death. Verse 7, starting midway into 6 into 7. Deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There are some that trouble you. There was, in this gathering, in Galatia, there were some, like I said, that were practicing Judaism practicing the law, they were upholding the law. And so they're troubling them because they're saying, actually, no, you're not doing enough. Like, as, as a believer, you're not, you're not doing enough. As following Christ isn't enough. How many times do we get that in our culture? 
that you're not doing enough. Right? That's, that's not how Christians behave. That's not how you are to do things. It's not, it's not, it's, we're not doing enough. I don't know about you, but even in all my busyness, sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I don't have enough things on my list that I'm doing. And, and whether it be around the house, whether it be going to the grocery store, I'm afraid I've left off five things, right? Or whether it be in my ministry. Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. But are the things that we're doing, is that what is important? See, the thing that we must understand is that God's gospel is sufficient. The gospel of Christ is sufficient. It is what we need. And, and speak some into what Brother Matt shared last week. He shared about how I was, him and I both, but I got into a conversation with a young man online about the sufficiency of Scripture. This young man was, understand, came from a background to understand his context. He comes from a background that he, He's actually from Europe. He comes from a background where for him, Scripture isn't the sufficiency. It's just his, his upbringing. It's his tradition. And so it isn't the sufficiency. And so when we began to have this conversation, for him, he would say that Christ is sufficient, but that the Word is not. He separates the two. But we can't separate the two. Paul doesn't separate the two. Paul doesn't separate God from Christ. He doesn't separate Christ from God. And he doesn't separate the Word from God or Christ. So when he says that there are some that are troubling you, what he's saying is there are some that are wanting to cling to the law. It's not that the law is evil. It's not that the law is not something that we should know of and observe. It's the history. It's how God led us to where we are, but it's not that which sustains us. It is not sufficient. The reason that we have the law is so that we recognize that Christ is the one that's sufficient in place of the law. So he continues to say that they distort the gospel. Looking back at our past, looking back at the law, it distorts the gospel. It distorts what God has done through Christ. And we see this, even in our church, we see this in in ways in which we respect the word. There's some that want to cling only to Old Testament, some that want to cling only to New Testament. We have all these different variations of what we believe. Well, what Paul is saying here is that we must cling to the gospel of Christ, which we find only in his word and through his word. In verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. But even if we or an angel, when Paul is referring here, he is speaking of something that will never happen. He says, if we or an angel, he's, he's playing with them because he wants them to understand, listen to me, those that are truly serving God, we're not going to preach to you something that's contrary to the truth. Now, not, Paul's not trying to put himself on a pedestal like he's holier than that. But of his faith, to know his testimony of who he was, you can know that he's not going to sway from the truth. Even when he was in living through the falsehood, even when he wasn't living in truth, he didn't waver. 
Even when he was upholding the law, he didn't waver. Why would we think his character would change? God took that character and he took Paul. And rather than having Paul face this way, he turned Paul this way. He said, no, I want you to keep that character. I want you to keep that confidence. But you need to go this way. This is the way of my truth. Not this way. And so Paul, all he did was his aim changed. His purpose changed. He became a new creature in Christ. He became a new person, a new man in Christ. Again, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach, let him be accursed. If we come forward and we are telling something, this is also a way of him saying, keep us accountable. But for you to keep us accountable, you have to be keeping yourself accountable to Christ. Even I, who has the privilege of being up here and, and privilege of being with the students and the children, I have to be accountable. I am not above reproach. I am to be also held accountable. And so there are moments in life where... Apologies. There are moments where anyone in this room can approach one another and we can encourage one another. And we can speak on things of the gospel and we can speak on things as long as we frame them in scriptural truth. That conversation I had last week, I, I did my best to whenever I would respond, I responded a matter of four times to the individual, the young man. Uh, and when I did, I would always start off with this phrase, in light of this scripture, what do you think? And he would send a rebuttal. I'd say, in light of this text, how do you interpret that? Because I'm truly trying to understand, where are you coming from? Why do you believe that? You, you, make a, you make a phrase, and for me, there's a straight contradiction from Scripture of what you're saying is true. You see what we're doing there, using Scripture. One thing that I noticed, that many of the young men, and this was on a Baptist page, so there's tons of believers and tons of Baptists on the page. Only a handful were actually using Scripture references in their discussion with them. Well, based on whose truth? Whose truth are you trying to lead them to? Whose truth are you trying to use to defend God's gospel? All these men, I believe, were trying to defend God's gospel, but they weren't using God's gospel. Now, it's not that this is wrong. It's not that their intent was wrong at all. It's not that all we have to do is just stand in front of someone and just spit scripture at them and quote scripture until they, you know, something happens. No, but we have to stand on the word of God. We have to preach that which is in line with Scripture, and the only way to do that is to preach Scripture. So we use it as a defense. So he says um, in verse 9, I say again, if anyone preaching to you the gospel on contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This word here, accursed. Again, Paul's not wavering, and he's not, he's not throwing little punches. When he uses this word, accursed, that word also means damnable. Meaning if anyone preaches the gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, contrary to what God has, let them be damned. 
That's, his, that's what he means. And it's not to be offensive. It's not to be shocking all, but that's what he means. He says, if you're not following the gospel truth, then that's the only other option. That's, that's the option. It's just as where, how he began it, where he said, I'm astonished so quickly that so many of you are deserting him. If you're deserting him, death is your option. He's not being mean. He's not being cruel. He's actually being loving because he's bold enough and he's honest enough to look at someone and say, if you're not following Christ, if you don't believe in Christ, if you don't give your life to Christ, then there's only one option. And it's not heaven. I want to share this and I don't know if I ever have it. Please forgive me if I have. I'll do it quickly just in case I have. But there was a young man one time that began to go knock on doors and do evangelism in his neighborhood. A young man I knew. And he had built a relationship with a neighbor. He'd known the neighbor for about a year. And in this year, he'd been going knocking on everybody's door. But he was really nervous about going to this guy and sharing the gospel with him and bringing up the Bible with him. Now, he'd eaten dinner with this guy and had, had family meetings with this guy and had, had been, they'd had family fellowships and stuff together. And he goes to meet with him, and he's known him about a year, and he sits down at the dinner table with him, and uh, he says, man, I, I want to share with you something. He said, I want to share with you the most important thing in my life. And he begins to share about Jesus. He's known the guy a year. And the guy looks at him and goes, no disrespect, but if he was the most important thing of your life, in your life, you would have started with that when you knocked on my door over here. Now, I will tell you this, that young man came to me devastated. I was devastated for him. I was devastated with him because I realized how many people in my life could say that to me. I realized how many times in my past that that, that could have been said of me, that if he's the most important thing in your life, then why is he only a prayer at lunch? If he's the most important thing in your life, why is he a prayer when you're not feeling good or when you need something? If he's the God of your life, why is he not the one you serve in everything you do? Now, that looks different for many of us. It's not that we all have to go sell our house and live on the street and live in tattered clothes and sit on the street corner preaching the gospel. It's not. That's not what is being said. What is being said is that devotion to Christ is exactly that. It's devotion to Christ. To be devoted to something is to pour your life into it and allow that thing to pour into you. You give your life for one another. And as Christ has given his life for us, we are to give our life to service of him. Verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He challenges him. He says, am I seeking your approval? How many times can we say that to someone? Am I really seeking your approval? Here's the thing. One day we need to look in the mirror. We need to say to the person staring back at us, am I trying to seek your approval? Because I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I am more disappointed in myself than I think anybody else in the room. But I'm not seeking to please myself. I'm not seeking to be the one to please any other man or to please myself. Or to, I'm not looking for that. I'm still in seminary, but I'm not seeking to please my... Professors, 
I'm seeking to please God in the work that I'm doing. I try my best to seek God in pleasing Him in the way in which I lead my family. I try to please God in the way in which I lead the ministry. I try to please God in the way in which I walk out those doors every Sunday. Do I succeed every time? No. Will we exceed every time? No. But we can follow Christ every time. And we can preach a gospel that is not contrary to that which we find in Scripture. Continuing down. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Again, he uses this imagery that if there's anything in the way, I'm not serving Christ. And if I'm not serving Christ, right, what does that mean? We go back up, I'm accursed. If anything I'm doing is for man, if anything I'm doing is not for God, if I'm not following his gospel, then I'm not a servant of Christ. See, the... They were, again, following the law. And this wasn't the law of Christ, because Christ, what? He came and he abolished the law. Right? He came to fulfill the law. And so, service to Christ is what was needed now. That was what they were being called to. See, in this passage, firstly, we see that God's gospel is sufficient, but secondly, we see that compromise of God's gospel leads to condemnation. Compromise of God's gospel leads to condemnation. God's, <laughs> compromise to God's gospel leads us only to death and separation. That's the only option. Does that seem like an urgency? Absolutely. Does it seem like something that's kind of an extreme? Absolutely. But it's the gospel truth. Does it bother me? Absolutely. It should bring a burden upon me. When we have situations where people come and they get in our face or someone comes and, and, and handles themselves in a way that isn't maybe Christ-like. I've had, I've had youth pastors do this. Youth workers do this. Where they'll run up and because we impeded their schedule or something happened where it didn't go right, they're upset. And they'll say things like, how dare you? How irresponsible are you? Now, are there moments where things are irresponsible? Absolutely. Are there moments where you might offend somebody and you kind of sort of intentionally meant to and you realize you need to repent of that? Absolutely. But there's moments where we're, we're not trying to do that, we're not uh, intending to do that, and yet the response is a negative response. And we want to look at them and we want in our mind to, to say, how in the world are you serving God if you're behaving that way, but then we have to stop and look at our own actions and go back to that mirror. Say, are we only seeking to please God? Or, I'm sorry, only seeking to please ourselves? Are we seeking to please God in everything that we do? So compromise of God's gospel leads to condemnation. Continuing into verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ. Real quickly, I'm going to flip to Acts 
22. So if you want to turn with me, I'm going to be in Acts 22 for the moment. And I'll be starting in verse... Let's see here if I can cut a little bit out. So we'll be... We'll start in verse 4. Let's start in verse 4. 22 verse 4. This is Paul talking. This is Paul giving a defense. And this is Paul giving a defense and talking about his conversion. Just a little bit deeper. But this is his words as it is written in God's word. Verse 4. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So when he says I persecuted this way, he's talking about I, I persecuted those that were following Christ. So he's on trial for the fact that he's turned away from the law and he's now following and proclaiming Christ. And he says, so when he says there, the way he's referring to those that are following Christ. I persecuted, persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. As high priests in the whole council of elders can bear wit me witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's in front of his peers and he's saying, this was my intent, my honest, in my honest intent. This isn't a ploy. This wasn't some story we made up. I was going to do what I originally said I was going to do. So I was on the road to Damascus to go punish those in Jerusalem. As I was on the way and draw near to Damascus, about noon, a light came from heaven and suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. So when Paul talks about that he had an encounter with Christ, he had an encounter with Christ. On the road to Damascus, Christ comes to him and confronts him in his mess. Verse 9. Now those who were with me saw the light, but, it did, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand and by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So he's blind, he cannot see, he has to literally be led to where he's going. Understand that at this point, physically, he can't do anything. He's stumbling. I'm telling you, if I took off these glasses, the most likely result would be someone helping me up off the floor. But understand that this wasn't what he was dealing with. He could not see. He had to be led by hand. Now, my son likes to come up and, and grab my hand or my wife's hand and walk around with us, but that's just because he likes to be with us. He doesn't need a guide. Paul needed a guide because he could not do it on his own. Verse 12, And Ananias, a devoted man according to the law, well spoken of all the Jews who lived there, so a man in good standing, 13, came to me, standing by me, and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And so we know that God sent him to Paul. 
So again, this isn't just a good man with a good heart. God sent him to finish what God had started off to do with Paul. He wanted him to continue the process. So, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the very hour I received my sight, I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone what you've done, I'm sorry, what you've seen and what you've heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash your sins, calling his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony, but make about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that the one in the synagogue, after another I imprisoned, and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. There's a moment in this text where Ananias says, for you will be a witness to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Challenge us with that question this morning. Why do we wait? God has called us to something. Why do we wait? We've been part of something in, this, in ministry for so many years. Why do we wait? <clears throat> what is it that we're waiting on? Who is it that we're waiting on? Do we really think that we wait on God or is God waiting on us? It's not that God can do things. God can do whatever he wants with or without us. It's not that God needs us. God desires for us. The reason why God stopped Paul on the road to Damascus wasn't because he needed Paul. It's because he desired Paul. Because he wanted Paul. It wasn't because he needed him. I don't know about you, but I forget that a lot of times. Because there might be some times in our life, too, where we go, man, can, can, can you just put me on a road to Damascus real quick and just kind of give me a straight line of what I'm supposed to be doing here? <laughs> like, God, can you, just, can you just paint a picture? But just as we look back at the story of even Joseph where he's thrown into prison with his brothers, I mean, he was an actual small boy who was there with his brothers, listening to his brothers about what they were going to do. Do you think he had 100% confidence of what the next step was going to be or what the end was going to be? That was a real life thing for him. He was going step by step through that process. Just as we go in our life through these step by step process and we have to pray and we have to have faith that God's going to see us through. Because the gospel tells us so. Not that everything's going to be okay. There's going to be pain and suffering. We're going to be sick. I'm not drinking water because I like the taste. I'm drinking water because my throat keeps wanting to close up. We're going to get sick. We're going to come into times of, of trouble, even, you know, financial trouble. And I don't want to camp out here too long. But there are tons of different troubles in our life that we come into. And Paul's at this moment where Ananias has come to him and he says, why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? Why are you waiting for salvation? It's here at the doorstep. Walk through it. 
walk through the door. There's a debate that goes on sometimes in the pastoral world about what the pulpit is meant for. Whether it's discipleship, whether it's evangelism, what should we be doing up here when we're up here? Well, we should be proclaiming the word of God. That's, I don't know why that's so hard. We should proclaim the gospel, but not only that, brother, sister, listen to me, this took me a really long time. When we hear someone evangelizing the gospel, that should be encouragement to us because we remember that moment. We remember the moment that we accepted Christ. I don't mean by the day or the date, right? We don't have to know the date of when we were saved. We don't have to know the hour. If we know this thing, that's great. We should rejoice in that. But we know the moment that Christ came into our life, that it became real to us. And that is what we should cling to. And that is what we should remember. One of my darkest moments in seminary, I was having a really hard time adjusting, was in my first year. And the workload was, I can't even describe to you the workload. I really can't. Trying to learn languages that nobody uses anymore. Trying to understand texts that even my professors are saying they don't understand 100%. Me thinking I have to come out of this with all the answers. Not really, and that wasn't it. I remember one night sitting in my in our little apartment. And uh, at a moment of weakness, and I, I began to weep. And I've never shared this before, but I began to weep. And my wife was there. And I'm just, I'm like, baby, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. This is overwhelming. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I don't know what to do. So I know God's called me to it, but I'm tired. And she looks at me and she goes, honey, she goes, I need you to remember that moment. And I said, what moment? She said, the moment that God called you to this. Because that's all you need. Because God called you to what you're pursuing. So pursue it. Are you going to trip and fall? Yes. Are you going to stumble? Yes. Are you going to fail? Probably, possibly. We don't know. Failures are going to happen. But just because we see a failure doesn't mean that God doesn't see a success. recap just a little bit of what Paul says here and then we'll wrap up in 20 when the blood of Stephen your witness was shed I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him so here he brings back that that moment that we all know where he's standing over Stephen he's there present at the stoning of Stephen and he admits this is my failure out before you this is it here it is I'm not dodging the questions. I'm actually answering the questions before you can ask. Here it is. So we see here in Galatians. We turn back. Again in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. When Paul says man didn't give him the gospel, man didn't give him the gospel. Man had probably been trying to give him the gospel. Do you really think that these men and women of faith that he was punishing and persecuting and stoning and killing weren't trying to share the gospel in those moments? That's all they would proclaim. That's why they killed him. All they would proclaim was the gospel. Paul had heard the gospel over. He knew it. 
And it wasn't until that moment that God met him where he was. God said, I've got something greater for you, Paul. And Paul was put into a moment of complete and total surrender. Paul had a choice. But God said, Paul, I choose you to a new responsibility. So he says, that gospel that was preached by me is not by man, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I didn't even learn it in all the studying of my child. He just said all the learning they'd done from a little kid was completely and totally pointless because he didn't learn any of it about Christ. Now, he's not saying it's pointless in the point of how he's able to witness. It's extremely important in the way he's able to witness. But it's not important to the gospel of Christ because he said, I wasn't taught any of that. I was told this from the source. Right. But I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I received it because Christ met me where I was. So things that we see today is God's gospel is sufficient. Why is it sufficient? Because of Christ. Compromise of God's gospel leads to condemnation. We cannot say that any part of God's gospel is any more important or any more sufficient than the rest because it is all sufficient. And lastly, Christ is the sufficiency of God's gospel. See, if we look at the Old Testament, we see that there wasn't a whole lot of sufficiency going on. The law was not sufficient. But in Christ, there is sufficiency for us today. So today as we finish, in just a moment, we're going to have worship. We're going to have an invitation time. I want to encourage you. If you want to come forward and pray, the altar is open. I always encourage that. The altar is open. If you want to come forward and, and you really feel like God's calling you to come forward and, and you just don't have the confidence, you don't want to, you're just not sure, please ask the person next to you to come. They'd be glad to come with you. If you're here today and for the first time you feel like the Lord is calling you, feel like the Lord has spoken to you, has laid upon your heart to respond to the truth of his gospel. I, I ask that you come speak to me today. I'd love to have that conversation. Even if it's just a question, even if it's just a prayer, I would love to pray with you. I'll, and I don't even have to pray with you here. If you just want to give me something to pray for throughout the week, I'd love to do that. But I don't want you to sit there and not respond to God today. If he's laid something on you, let's be like Paul. And we'll just respond to him when he calls to us. So as we go forward, I'm going to pray. Jim's going to play. And then we'll have a time of invitation. I'll be forward if anyone wants to come through. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, thank you for today. God, I thank you for those that are here. I thank you for those online. I thank you for those that weren't able to be here. God, if any of our family here is sick or not feeling well, or God just needs your prayer and your presence, God, I pray that it be with them today. Lord, I pray that your word was proclaimed to today. God, I pray that as we enter into this time of invitation, God, that we would not hold back, that we would not let the thoughts of anyone else hinder us from moving. But God, if you've called us into a relationship with you, that we make that choice today, we respond. But God, also, just that we would respond in prayer faithfully to you. That God, we would 
we would do business with you. God, we love you and praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Be with us as we go.